Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back. Today we'll be hearing parts three and four of The Golden Sparrow, the fictional story of a musical escape room that I produced in Fort Collins, Colorado in March of 2019. Part 3. 25 Franklin Lane had won. After my last visit to the building and my inspection of Mr. Franklin's office, I was ready to act. I was not possessed of the resources that would allow me to purchase the building at any cost, but I knew I could make a legitimate offer. I called Janine and left a voicemail letting her know that I wanted to purchase the building. It did not take her long to get back to me. There is no one so responsive to a voicemail as a realtor getting an offer on a property. I presented my terms and, as I expected, she was direct and did not betray any sense of pleasure or disappointment. She said she would reach out to the Panchromatica Society with the terms of my offer and would be in touch. I anticipated that it would be a few days before I would hear back and set the matter aside to attend to my normal affairs. I had long ago learned that it is best not to obsess over negotiations, as they can easily take an unfavorable turn. In this instance, I only waited about three days before Janine called back. The society is eager to sell this property, but your offer is too low. They know that this building is valuable and are not in a position to sell it at any cost. Janine was again unruffled and firm. I don't have a lot of room to move. If I'm going to make any type of profit on this purchase, I need to reserve some money for upgrades and improvements. You and I both know that it is not tenant-ready yet. I've had three calls of interest on the building, just in the last 24 hours. I expect that I will start to get other offers shortly. Has anyone else visited the building yet? I have a representative from a development company scheduled for a walkthrough tomorrow afternoon. Have you emptied Franklin's office? I hated to show my hand so nakedly, but I had to know. That office and its contents were central to my interest. No, I think it adds charm, so we'll be leaving it intact for now. I did go back through after you visited and put the contents of the desk back in the drawers. She realized that the building had more appeal with Mr. Franklin's office staged. Okay. Well, I respect that your client wants to get the strongest possible offer. I would do nothing differently in their situation. Do they have a counteroffer in mind? Yes, they want an additional $50,000 and a few other conditions. $50,000 would pretty much exhaust my funds for improvements. Not sure I can make that work. I don't think I can match that price. I'll have to think about it. Just so I know, what are the other conditions? The society's investments in the building are more than monetary and they are concerned about the stewardship of the property going forward. Um, I'm not sure what that means. Let's just say that they have an interest in the historical quality of the building. They want to ensure that the building will remain intact. I see. They don't want a developer to buy the building for the land and tear it down. Yes, something like that. It's not only the existence of the building, but there are certain aspects of the interior that the buyer must agree to preserve. This was my opening. 
I knew that there were many better-funded investors who were always prowling for new properties in Old Town. However, the largest of them had a reputation for purchasing old buildings, gutting them, and grafting ahistorical additions to them. The Town Historical Society was constantly lobbying the City Council to stop these purchases and to block approval of their building proposals. You know that my interest in this property is directly connected to the intersection of its location and its provenance. I do, and I did relate that to the Society along with your offer. They considered that when they developed their counterproposal. In our current market, the dollar value of the land alone is more than your offer. Their counteroffer is generous and accounts for the evident interest in the building and history that you have shown. This is important to them, but as I said, they must meet a certain price threshold. If you think this building is the right purchase for you, perhaps I can connect you to some friends at the bank who can structure a better financing option for you. So you can make the deal on your terms? Please don't insult me or the seller. We have noted your interest and, as I mentioned, we place value on your commitment to preserving the property. I can't compromise on the price, but I am willing to help you meet our requirement in any way I can. I have already had interest from some potential future tenants, and I think we can put together a case for the bank that demonstrates the value of the property and informs their analysis of your ability to carry a mortgage on it. It will not be difficult to show the commercial strengths of the property. That can help you meet the purchase price and still have reserves for improvements in operations. This felt a bit like a visit to a new car dealer. We won't change the price, but we'll work with the bank to make sure they'll loan you the money. I hated that. But I could not deny her claim that the value of the land alone would be greater than my original offer. I replied, I need a day or two to think this through. Can I ask you to let me know if you receive any other offers in the next few days? Sure. As I mentioned, another firm is visiting the property tomorrow afternoon. If you make a decision before then, please let me know so I don't waste their time or mine. Okay, I will. Thanks for the update. Knowing real estate agents to be ruthless business people, I knew that she would be on the phone with the other party in a matter of minutes to let them know that an offer was pending in the hopes that she might launch a bidding war to drive up the purchase price. The clock was ticking, and the longer I waited, the more the price might rise out of reach. I wanted the building more than I should. It's not like I was purchasing a home to house me. This was purely business, or at least it should be. I spent the evening going through listings for other commercial properties to ameliorate my ignorance of the market into which I was about to plunge. I found a few listings for my initial price that were much smaller and more remote from the hub of Old Town. There were several more that were equally smaller but much more expensive owing to their adjacency to the bustle of the center. Even at an additional $50,000, the Society's counteroffer was an almost irresistible offer. As a financial consideration, the deal made perfect sense. But as with so many of the grandest investments we make as individuals, it wasn't my reason that was driving me to make the deal. The terms were defensible, although much harder for me to meet than I had been prepared to venture. No, it was not the balance sheet of this purchase that moved me. There was something undeniably magnetic in that building, and even more so in the office of Mr. Franklin. I had never been particularly interested in history, and even less interested in a time so long past. 
My interest in the building had been simply pecuniary, but somehow my interaction with Mr. Franklin's story had made it more personal. There was something enchanting about the private view of his life and his fascinations that I could not quite erase. Since my afternoon in his office and archives, I had found myself slipping into brief reveries of the room. I pictured myself there building a real estate empire whose influence on Fort Collins would rival his own. I would stand looking out the windows to the south and gaze upon a revitalized North Franklin Lane that stretched from my doorstep to the heart of Old Town to the south. I would sit at his desk and join the ranks of influential people in the story of my community. I would receive noteworthy people as guests in my office and pour a shared draft of expensive scotch whiskey to swill over important real estate deals as the sound of elegant music wafted into the office from a reception in the lobby. Indeed, I had consumed the bait and was hooked. It's easy to scoff and diminish the dreams of others, but for me these pictures took shape in my brain and did the work of negotiation for the society. I just knew that it was my future and I was eager to figure out how to make it a reality. I called Janine the following morning. If I wanted to move forward with the counteroffer from the Society, what would that look like? If you are serious to move forward, let's meet at the bank. I called Joe there yesterday and mentioned our discussion, and I know he's free until noon. As a sign of good faith, I will need a deposit if you want me to put a hold on showing the property to other parties. Okay, no problem. I was going to make that a term of my offer, that you keep the property closed to other clients. I'll meet you down at the bank in an hour. Our meeting was cordial, and, as promised, I gave her a bank check deposit of enough money to show the seriousness of my intent. Janine spent the rest of the meeting talking to Joe on my behalf. She brought comparable listings that had recently sold to make the case that this was a good purchase price. She had a listing of interested tenants and again had data about the going rent per square foot for properties in the area. In all, we spent about two hours going through the purchase details and the potential revenues that would make the bank's investment with me a sound one. Joe was dutifully professional and disinterested, but by the end he had flipped to a positive tone and the three of us reaffirmed our willingness and intent to proceed. I hadn't expected my interaction with the bank to be such a smooth one, as my previous efforts to secure financing for investment properties had failed. I took this as an unspoken vote of support from Janine, and by extension, the Panchromatica Society, that they were pleased to see me become the next owner of 25 Franklin Lane. I hadn't set out to be a champion of the building, but my time in it had made me one. I was more than happy to commit to the seller's conditions relating to the preservation and ongoing care of the property. We exchanged genuinely warm handshakes all around, and the deal was done. The legal machinery would take more than a month to execute the transfer, but I was not inclined to wait for its intricacies to unfold. Having now put a non-trivial amount of my personal capital on the line for this deal, I was invested in seeing it through. It did not require any substantial persuasion to convince Janine of the same, and I was given use of the building keys for the purposes of entering it to plan for refurbishments. 
Over the next few weeks, I made three visits in the company of contractors to estimate fire code upgrades, bathroom renovations, accessibility accommodations, and other requirements of commercial buildings. After each, I would find myself at the end of these meetings sitting back at Mr. Franklin's desk to read proposals or other documents related to the building, while a contractor sat opposite to negotiate the deal. My visions of life as a real estate tycoon were beginning to materialize. The legal process of building ownership wound its way to completion as scheduled, and within a month of my meeting at the bank with Janine, we were sitting in front of the bank notary, having fully executed the transfer of ownership. 25 Franklin Lane was mine. It wouldn't be until a week later that I consciously noticed the pen I had received from Joe to sign the documents. It bore a logo that was somehow familiar, but was not the logo of the bank. Part 4 It's difficult to convey how quickly my sense of pride and hope at becoming the owner of this storied property would turn to a deep sense of unease. This unease did not descend upon me clothed in the robes of routine buyer's remorse. I was triggered by a specific discovery that, at the time, deeply shook me. Having become, now irreversibly, the owner of 25 Franklin Lane, I was again seated in Mr. Franklin's, now my, office. Working through some notes in the margins of a proposal to update the entrance area, I was idly spinning my pen around my fingers. I hadn't examined this pen before, as it was yet another of the many commercially branded pens that professionals, bankers, lawyers, real estate agents, would hand out during meetings to leave a remora of identity attached to a business dealing. This particular pen had been the one I took from the closing on the property from the bank. As I idly spun it in hand, I looked at its details for the first time. It bore no text, no website address, no institution name, but only a symbol. It was somehow familiar, but I could not place it at first. I don't know why it captured and kept my attention, but my curiosity would not relent. I stared at it for a moment but my memory did not deliver the desired resolution. Setting the pen down, I disappeared into my thoughts as I gazed into space. I became vaguely aware of the sound of music outside again, and this snapped me out of my reverie. Hearing the sound of musicians playing outside, I was reminded of the earlier episode prior to my purchase of the building. I walked out of the office and down to the street. As I came into the lobby on the first floor, the music stopped. The stairs were made of hardwood, and the heels of my dress shoes made my presence on the stairs known throughout the building. Coming out the front, I anticipated seeing players set up for busking on the street. Stepping out of the building, I saw a few scattered pedestrians, but there was no evidence of a musical instrument anywhere around. I walked around the building and found it vacant on all sides. Returning to the entrance, I was alone. I knew I had heard music but there was no one around. As I stood, briefly puzzled, I realized where the sound must have originated. Scolding myself for being so jumpy, I concluded that it would naturally have been a car passing in front of the building. That would explain the brevity of music each time. It was a sunny and wonderful Colorado morning, and it was perfectly natural for people to have their windows down. Or perhaps it was a convertible that had been opened to receive the blue sky from above. 
Regardless of what type of vehicle it may have been, I marveled that I had spent even a moment preoccupied with the source of the music in the first place. I had many things to do, and I kept finding myself readily distracted. I headed back to the office to continue my review of the proposal for the lobby, and it was my re-entry to the office that delivered the aforementioned shock. I had seen Mr. Franklin's desk many times over the last few months and had spent many hours behind it. But until this moment, I had never taken note of any of the details on the opposite side to where I would sit. Entering the room from my failed investigation on the street, I had a moment of recognition that disturbed me much more than my description of it could convey. Walking into the office, I focused on the back side of Franklin's desk for the first time. It was this act that closed the loop of inquiry that had started moments before when I gazed at the pen I had received from the bank. I now understood why the symbol on the pen had been so familiar. Crafted into the parquet pattern of paneling on the back of the desk was the same symbol which sat at the center. It was subtle and unremarkable. I went to the desk and took the pen to hold it up next to the symbol on the desk. Identical. Had the symbol been something common like a triangle or other basic geometrical construct, I would have assumed that this was purely a coincidence. But the symbol was a stylized sextant, a device used for stellar navigation at sea, and it was unmistakably the same. I ran my fingers across the smooth paneling, half expecting to catch a button or some other mechanism. There was no such discovery. The sense of deja vu that had hit me as I looked upon the logo on the pen, was now explained. I had seen that same symbol dozens of times as I had entered this office. Although my focus had never landed upon it, my ambient perceptions had recorded it so that it had become vaguely familiar by the time I examined the pen. This realization would have been a minor novelty in normal situations, but the air of mystery in this office gave it a punch that set me back. My mind immediately filled with a vortex of anxiety about what the connection between Mr. Franklin's decorative choice and the financial machinery that brought it into my possession might be. However, it was a weekend and the bank would be closed, so I had to put my curiosity aside for the moment and resolve to contact Joe on Monday to ask about the pen. Kneeling now before the back panel of the desk, I noticed some features that had escaped me before. The prominent middle panel on the back was an elegant interlocking pattern of wood components that was both subtle and undeniably luxurious. Along the outside edges of this panel, there was trim that helped frame its boundary with the rest of the desk. On either side of this primary back panel were two panels that represented the backsides of the drawer stacks on either side. Common to executive desks from this period, these two sections to either side protruded further out into the room from the recessed center panel, and it was the raised structure to the left of the center panel that had caught my specific attention. I saw, subtly embedded in the carved trim features, a very small line of hinges along the outside corner on the left column. The dark metal hinges were obscured by the dark stained wood of the desk, and unless a person came within inches of the back panel, they would never see them. From the appearance and placement of the hinges, it seemed there might be a very narrow vertical door that ran from underneath the top of the desk 
down the left column on the side facing toward the back panel. I gently pushed on the edge of the door, thinking it might be a spring-loaded latch. I was correct. Pushing in, I heard a click, and the thin vertical panel now swiveled outward, revealing a very narrow chamber that ran along the left column, a little behind where the back of the drawers would rest when closed. This small chamber contained a smaller book which I proceeded to remove. Opening the cover, I discovered a hand-inscribed date, February 1st, 1897, just above the name of the owner, property of Elias Franklin. Turning the page, I found the first of many handwritten pages that comprised Mr. Franklin's last earthly musings. This was his personal journal, and I was likely the first person since his passing to have discovered its existence. I walked back around to the front of the desk and began to read through the record that I had so recently acquired. Each page had a date and contained the accounts and contemplations of Mr. Franklin for that day. His writing was refined and confident, befitting a person of stature in his day. Most of the entries involved a record of various social or business engagements, and for the most part, they were routine. Met Mr. N for cocktails, signed a contract with Mr. Y, attended the theater with such and such a socialite. It was a largely unremarkable collection of events. There were, however, a few entries that seemed connected to the elusive narrative of Mr. Franklin's dealings with the world to which the contents of his office had introduced me. March 4, 1897. The Lodge agreed that Mr. L.'s services must be solicited for the resolution of the Cheyenne incident. As usual, I will deliver half of his payment up front, the second half upon completion of the contract. The Cheyenne incident and the Lodge. I had heard of neither before. That same afternoon, another entry of note. Ethel and I are looking forward to the new show coming to the Opera House tomorrow night. The Golden Sparrow, a small production from St. Louis. Dinner reservation at the Raleigh before the show. Here again, The Golden Sparrow, the little opera that factored into Mr. Franklin's final days. March 5, 1897. Tonight's show was troubling. I attempted to speak with the manager immediately afterwards, but found that he had already departed. The opera's overture is rife with insolent allusion to the Lodge's fraternal virtues, and I fear the composer may somehow have learned the lost secrets which we are sworn to defend. Very troubling. Mr. Franklin was clearly very invested in the work of this Lodge. My earlier research into his associations had only turned up a vague reference to his work with various fraternal orders. This might be the only record of the degree of his participation. I recognized that he must have been more than a casual participant in one such order. The Lodge, capitalized in these two entries, had an evident hold of duty upon him. He was a funding source, perhaps the treasurer, and also a zealous defender of some body of secret learning. Further entries. March 6, 1897. Return to the Opera House tonight. If the Golden Sparrow does reveal the lost secrets, as I fear that it may, then it must not be allowed to continue its run. I bought out all the available seats to tonight's show and dispatched a telegram to the composer's office in St. Louis requesting a meeting. 
March 7, 1897. Mr. L. returned from Cheyenne today and stopped by for his payment. The Golden Sparrow potentially threatens the integrity and security of the lost secrets far more than any persons involved in the Cheyenne incident, and I informed Mr. L. that his services may be needed again on short notice. Another entry. I bought out the majority of the house's seats again tonight and have purchased every seat for tomorrow's showing. If Schroeder, the opera's composer, declines to come to Fort Collins to meet, then I am prepared to travel to St. Louis with Mr. L. to attend to this matter myself. March 20th, 1897. The Golden Sparrow has nearly completed its run. There is one final matinee showing tomorrow afternoon. I cannot let this production move on. I have invited the cast and the players to a gala send-off tomorrow, immediately after the final show. Mr. McDermott at the Opera House has assured me that the sheet music will not leave the building. I received a letter from the composer, Mr. Schroeder, in response to my telegram. He has declined my invitation to come to Fort Collins. March 21st, 1897. I have dealt with the musicians. The Golden Sparrow can no longer pose a threat to the Lodge or that which we defend. I have invoked one of the more obscure of the lost secrets to seal the musicians from the world. The last piece they played is their cage and the grand corral is the key. One loose end remains. Mr. L. and I will be leaving for St. Louis on the next train. March 24, 1897. Arrived by train in St. Louis this evening. The stage company is headquartered close to the riverfront. Mr. L. and I shall begin our search for Schroeder there. March 27, 1897. Back in Fort Collins today from that unpleasant business in St. Louis. My work is done, and the lodge is secure once again. I am delivering the second half of Mr. L.'s payment tomorrow afternoon. I cannot get the tune of the Golden Sparrow's Overture out of my head, but I suppose as long as I'm the only one who hears it, I have been successful. March 30, 1897 it is a tragedy that the Golden Sparrow represented such a grievous threat to the lost secrets. I dare say that it is the most beautiful articulation of the Lodge's virtues that I have ever experienced. For the first time in my career with the Lodge, I find myself beset by guilt for defending the lost secrets. And I keep hearing the Golden Sparrow in my mind. April 2nd, 1897. Bad blizzard today found myself snowed into my office. Schroeder's music will not leave my mind. I haven't slept more than a few hours since I returned from St. Louis, and I have been haunted by the memory of the Golden Sparrow. But here, it is different. It seems to bleed out of the very walls of my office, and I hear it incessantly. It is fragmented now, and it taunts me. I shouldn't hear music, but I do. This was the final entry. It was the day before he was found dead, face down in the snow. As I read this, I recoiled from Mr. Franklin's final words in his journal. It wasn't just the shock of coming face to face with a man on the doorstep of his death. That was solemn. What struck a chord of fear in me was my sudden awareness. Just as I read of what seemed to be Franklin's final madness, 
that I again heard the sound of musicians playing just at the periphery of my perception. Perhaps I was mad with imagination and fear, but I dropped the journal on the desk and got out of the building as fast as I could, only stopping for a moment to lock the front door to protect, or perhaps contain, what was inside. And that concludes part four. Tune in next time for part five of The Golden Sparrow. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Gustav Hoyer, Composer Impresario, or on Twitter, and you can also email me at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. I'd love to hear from you. I create this podcast to share my love of music, and your feedback helps me improve it. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time.